begin by asking a very simple question this morning. Does anybody here remember the winner of 57? Anybody remember the winner of 57? I'm looking around. I'm not seeing any hands. I know there's some people here who were around in 57. Well, I, I need to verify that just a little bit. I mean 57, not 1957. All right, I, I probably misled us just a little bit. It was the winner of 57, at least as best we can determine. And the Apostle Paul had made his way to the south uh, of what is today called Greece. He is finishing up his third missionary journey, and in particular, he's focused on this project that he has. During his entire third missionary journey, Paul had come up with this incredible idea. I mean, here he is, the apostle to the Gentiles, a trained Jewish rabbi, trained in Jerusalem under Gamaliel, and yet one very familiar with the Greek and Roman culture, could speak fluent Greek, probably could speak fluent Latin. And God had chosen him to be the apostle of all things to the Gentiles. Only problem is, is that the Jews and the Gentiles had been bitter enemies literally for hundreds of years. I mean, Gentiles didn't like this peculiar group known as the Jews, and the Jews saw the Gentiles as dogs. If that just gives you a picture of what Paul's up against. And so as Paul's trying to figure out, how do I bring Jews and Gentiles together, he came up with this concept. You see, the church back in Jerusalem, the mother church, the biggest church at that time in the world, numbered probably several tens of thousands, it was suffering. It had it, gone through a famine. They had had to sell their property to support those who were poor among them. And, and so the Jewish Christians were suffering. And so Paul had come up with this idea, what if I took up money among the Gentiles in order to build a bridge to their Jewish brethren and vice versa? And so he was going around all of these Gentile churches picking up collections. 1 Corinthians 16 is about that. Now, I grew up thinking this was about Sunday morning contribution. Well, that's in the background. There's a principle beneath the surface. But this was actually about this special contribution that Paul was uh, taking up. And what I love about Paul is that he was constantly trying to do things like this. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Paul's letters. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. And I do this for the sake of the gospel. Paul was constantly dreaming, uh, envisioning, how can I build people up in Jesus Christ, bring people together, and expand the kingdom of God? And let me just say to all of us, we need to ask ourselves the same question. What are we doing? What are you doing? What are we as a church doing to try to figure out how can we reach more people with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's time, brothers and sisters, for us to dream again. And so here's Paul, and he's dreaming. And, and he's come, like I said, to the end of his third missionary journey. He's come south into Greece, and Acts 20 tells us that he stays there for three months. Now, he stays there for three months for a reason. It's winter. You didn't get on the Mediterranean during winter. 
In fact, later on in the book of Acts, Paul will be on a boat that tried to sail too long into the winter and they ended up losing everything except their lives. And so Paul's come down to Corinth and he's there probably for January, February, March of uh, A.D. 57. And while he's there, he begins to hear some news. News that disturbed him. Now, while he's there, he's staying at the house of a man by the name of Gaius. The book of Romans actually tells us that. A man he had baptized during the second missionary journey. And so when Paul arrived in town, Gaius said, Hey, come stay with me. You baptized me back you know, four and a half, five years ago. And so that's where Paul is spending his time, along with several of his traveling companions. And there's other people who are passing or, or who are kind of stranded in Corinth at the same time. You see, Corinth is located on an isthmus where people from Rome, they would sail across, land on the western side of the isthmus, cross over to the eastern side, just a few miles, then take another boat and head into Asia Minor, head into Syria, head into Judea, wherever they might be going. And so it was a major crossroads, kind of like Nashville is. I mean, there's always people coming from the north, heading to the south, or from the east, heading to the west. I mean, Nashville is one of those crossroads. Corinth was as well. And so there were some people who had arrived there that winter who had come from Rome. And Paul had met them, and he had asked, how's the church in Rome? He had some dear friends who were there in that church. And he began to get reports that things weren't quite as well as they could have been. And that bothered Paul. You see, Paul's plan, again, he's always dreaming. Paul's plan is take the contribution, take it to Jerusalem, give it to the church there, sell for Rome, and then from Rome, let's go into Spain. That's his dream. And so he's got this beautiful dream in his mind. And, and of course, among the people who are in Rome is a couple by the name of Priscilla and Aquila. And I'm sure he's wanting to reunite with them. But Acts 18 tells us, though, the backstory to why these problems are happening in Rome. You see, Acts 18 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila had been forced out of Rome... By the, by the emperor Claudius because of some kind of problem going on there in Rome. And, and what's amazing about it is that the Roman historian Suetonius tells us the problem. Notice the text here. Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, the emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. We'll talk about when that was here in just a moment. But you've got this amazing story taking place of where you've got these conflicts going on in the synagogues of the Jews in Rome that finally caused Claudius to say, enough's enough, get out of here, leave Italy. Now, who is this Crestus guy? Now, here's what's interesting about that. People always misspell names. Anybody ever misspell your name? I, I get misspelled all the time. I mean, as a kid growing up, my name is L-E-S-L-I-E. -E. But everybody always sent me cards, L-E-S-L-E-Y. -E okay? And so I decided I'd fix that by just shortening my name to Les. L-E-S. And guess what? I get letters now addressed to L-E-S-S. -S. I'm serious. I'm serious as a heart attack. Now, it's probably more accurate 
Okay? I probably do need to be less. But, but even something as simple as L-E-S can get misspelled. Well, crestus here, very likely, almost everybody agrees, was a misunderstanding of the Greek word Christos, which is Christ. You see, what's going on in Jerusalem dates all the way back to the earliest days of the church. On the day of Pentecost, there were people there in the crowd listening to Peter's sermon. Notice here, visitors from Rome. And very likely among those 3,000s were people who had come from Rome to be there for, for Pentecost. And now they've obeyed the gospel. And eventually they're going to move back to Rome so that the church in Rome was established probably very early in the history of the church. And so here for a while the church had been growing, expanding, eventually welcoming Gentiles into it until 49. Almost 20 years later, after Pentecost, 49, all at once the churches in Rome found themselves without Jewish members for the very first time. You see, they just kept arguing in the synagogues, is Jesus the Christos or is he not? And there were riots taking place. Jews who didn't believe in Jesus would get upset. They would start fighting with the Christians who did believe, to the Jewish Christians who did believe in Jesus. And so the end result in 49, Claudia simply said, get out. And so all at once, one Sunday, kind of like during the pandemic last year, and even today, one Sunday everybody showed up at church and all the Jewish brethren were gone. They'd, they'd had to move out. Among them Priscilla and Aquila. And all at once for the first time, you've got a purely 100% Gentile church. Now this lasted until emperor came to the throne in AD 54. And so we know that these churches were purely Gentile churches for five, maybe six years. We don't know when Nero lifted Claudius's edict. But sometime around 55, 56, the edict is lifted and the Jews start moving back. They own property in Rome. They're going back to get their property to resume their lives. And all at once, one Sunday, here's all these Jewish brethren who had been elders, who had been deacons, who had been teachers. All at once, they're back at church. Except the churches have now Gentile elders, Gentile deacons, Gentile preachers. And so the question, who's going to preach that next Sunday? You know? <laughs> That's right, Pete. You know? Who's going to preach? And what Paul saw was a huge problem in these Gentile-led churches that concerned him because it looked just like this right here. I mean, you can imagine the first Sunday back, you've got all your Jewish brethren over here, all your Gentile brethren over here. You've got the Gentile preacher ready to preach, and the old Jewish preacher goes, what about me? And Paul had heard stories, stories that concerned him. Stories that had concerned Jesus 20 years earlier. Jesus knew how hard this would be. And so he said, listen guys, if we're going to get together people from all nations and all backgrounds and all cultures and all languages, we've got to somehow learn to love each other in a way that mankind's not used to doing. Godly love. 
And you've also got to somehow learn to get along in unity. Jesus was so concerned about it that in his last prayer, he prayed for us. That somehow we could learn how to get along with one another. Because sometimes Les Chapman, L-E-S-S or L-E-S, it's not easy to get along with. I promise you. And so here Paul is and he's aware of this and he's trying to figure out, what in the world am I going to do? And so sometime during that winter, he sits down with a pen and paper. He has a secretary named Tertius. You see his name up here. He's actually mentioned over in the 16th chapter. He says, by the way, I, Tertius, send greetings as well. Paul very likely because of his eyesight, we don't know for sure, but very likely Paul, you know, didn't have good eyesight. And so Paul would have other people write his letters. And so sometime in February or maybe March of that year, he sat down and began dictating what would become the epistle known as Romans. And what an incredible letter it is. All New Testament scholars look at Paul, and when they look at his letters, Romans the apex of the letters. It is Paul's Magna Carta. It is literally this incredible, incredible letter that gets over to chapter 8 and reads a pinnacle that literally takes us into the presence of God and what he's trying to do in the world. It begins with these simple words. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he kind of goes back and says, can I explain this gospel? It's the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, in the Torah, the Old Covenant, regarding his son who as to his earthly life came from David. We'll see why that's important in a second. And who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Who is he? Jesus Christos a name that comes flying back, if you remember Suetonius, Jesus Christos, our Curios, our Lord. And then what takes place is just a beautiful description of the gospel. I love the Passion Translation. I don't know if you're familiar with it. You can get it at BibleGateway.com. I don't have a hard copy of it, but boy, I go and look at it all the time. Because the Passion Translation sometimes really, I think, gets it right. Notice its translation. Paul, a loving and loyal servant, a slave, literally, of the anointed one. That's the word Christos, the anointed one, the King Jesus. He called me to be his apostle, set me apart for a mission to reveal God's wonderful gospel. My commission is to preach the good news. Put very simply, it's God's wonderful gospel. It is the good news, which is what the word gospel means. And it is ultimately Jesus the Christ. And brothers and sisters, we, we have got to get this concept of the gospel right. It's one of the most important concepts if we're ever going to change the world. He goes on again in the Passion Translation, yet it is not entirely new. You see, if you go back to the Old Covenant... The prophets predicted it in the sacred scriptures, how that it would be about God's son, this descendant of David, this fulfillment of God's promise in 2 Samuel 7, 16, almost a thousand years earlier. I mean, this has been predicted literally for generations and generations and generations, and it's now being fulfilled in Jesus 
the Messiah. But he's not just a fulfillment of the old covenant. He is the Son of God. A concept that in the first century, Jews just looked at and said, you've got to be kidding me. There is but one God. Yes, but that God somehow manifests himself as Father, Son, and Spirit. And he is the Son of God. And the proof of it, the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead in this incredible display of power. And now he is our Lord and our Messiah. I love what Paul does here. You know, Romans is one of these letters that is so compact. Every verse just has so much information in it. It's like a kaleidoscope. You can just look at it literally from degree of angle to degree of angle. It's just amazing. But I love the way Paul says ultimately it's about Jesus who is Lord and Messiah. Which, by the way, if you go to Acts 2, is exactly what Peter said Jesus was. It's the exact same sermon. I mean, he has basically taken Acts chapter 2 and summarized it in about four verses. And he ends it the same way. He is both Lord and Messiah. And so here's what we need to understand about the gospel. First of all, you have the core message. The gospel. And the gospel is simply that Jesus came, lived, died, was buried, raised again the third day, ascended to the Father, and sits at the right hand of God as King of kings and Lords of lords. That's the gospel. You can't get any more simple than that. And then you have what we call the response to the gospel. In other words, when you say that there is one who is in charge and his name is Jesus, people have to decide, how am I going to respond to that? And let me just urge all of us, once again, it is high time we realize that the one who is in charge in the world is not in Washington, he's not in Nashville, he is not anywhere in the world, he is at the right hand of God. I mean, we get so tied up in earthly politics that, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Within just a few years will not matter to any of us. It'll not be who you voted for to be president. It'll be whether or not you accepted the one who is the true king of the universe. The older I get, the more I realize, I look back on my years of where I was so caught up in, in this world politics that I'm afraid that I neglected the real world politics. And that is about Jesus. And so we have to respond to that. We'll talk about more about that in just a second. And then you have what's called the benefits of the gospel. Now it's important, brothers and sisters, you keep these, these three, while they're linked, clearly separated. Sometimes we'll talk about, I want to give you the gospel. And what we hand to someone is the response to the gospel. And, and, and what we expect them to do is respond to the gospel without not even knowing what the gospel message is. And so we've got to get the order right, and we've got to make sure people understand it. Look at Acts 2, 36 to 38. You have all three of them clearly displayed here. The first is the gospel. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God made this Christ, or this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. There's the gospel in its simplest form. And the response of the people, of course, is, what are we supposed to do? 
How do we respond to it? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, what we oftentimes call the gospel is actually the response to the gospel. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. Now, is the response important? Of course it is. But we need to realize it's the response to what the gospel is. And then notice the last part here, and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins, one of the benefits of the gospel, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, another of the benefits of the gospel. Now, are these the only two? Of course not. I mean, Paul will expound upon this throughout this entire epistle. You know, here are the incredible benefits of coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, if we can get these three things down, and here's, the, here's a beautiful verse to help you get it down. There are others. Then we understand the nature of the gospel from beginning to end. And so the question we all need to ask ourselves, have we responded to the gospel? Have we received those benefits? Because there's got to be a response. Simply saying, I know who Jesus is. Yes, I believe he died for my sins. Yes, I believe he was raised on the third day. Yes, I believe that he rules at the right hand of God. But if you never make a decision to follow him, then you've not received, obeyed the gospel. And that's what we've got to do. He goes on. And he describes this apostleship he had received, which is so important in the text. Through him we've received grace, forgiveness, and apostleship. God had called Paul specifically and those who were joining with him to go to the Gentile world. And he says, to the obedience that comes from faith. He says, listen, I'm calling Gentiles to believe in Jesus and to obey Jesus. Same thing Peter did in Acts 2.38. And then he says to these Romans, and he's speaking, notice, to the Gentiles here. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus, the anointed one, the king. And so he says to all those in Rome, to all of them, loved of God, called to be his holy people, chorus, kai, irene, who men, grace and peace to you. It's the Christian way of the, the, the old ancient Jewish greeting of shalom. They took it, they translated it into Greek. The Greek word is arene, shalom, peace. But peace comes from God's grace. And so early Christians, as they walked in the door of the assembly, would say, Chorus kai, arene, who men, grace and peace to you. And what a beautiful greeting it is. Then Paul says, you know, everybody's heard about your faith. He says, everybody has. It's incredible. He says, by the way, I pray for you. In my prayers at all times, I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. Again, Paul has finished his work in in the east. He's now headed to the west. And so he's praying, God, please let me go to Rome. From Rome, go into Spain. And he says, now I'm hoping that God will open the door. I long to see you. Why? I want to give you spiritual gifts. I want you to encourage me. And then notice verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you. He said, I've wanted to come to you over and over again. But for some reason, I have been prevented from doing so until now. And by the way, that doesn't mean that Satan has stopped him. Sometimes God stops us. 
You read through the book of Acts and Paul will say, we wanted to go up into Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit said no. You see, God's got a plan for us as well. And notice verse 10, and I pray that now at last by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. And, and of course, if you know the rest of the book of Acts, he's going to go to Rome. But it won't be immediately. It'll be several years. And he won't go free. He'll be in shackles. He'll be a prisoner of Rome. And if there's anything we learn from Romans is that God's will works according to his desires, not necessarily ours. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever prayed for something and then two or three years after you prayed for it and God said no, you said thank you God for saying no? I mean, have you ever? I have had that happen I don't know how many times. Being a young man who thought I knew what God needed to do through me in the world, God just shook his head and said, you don't have a clue, young man. God works at his time and according to his will and not according to our schedule. And I'm so grateful that he does. He knows far better than any of us. That's why we pray your will be done. Not my will, your will. And then you have some of the most powerful texts in all Scripture. Paul says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to non-Greeks, both to the wise to the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. I love that word obligated. Paul felt this calling, a calling that I wish we could feel, that God is putting people in our pathway every day People that we run into. People who desperately need Jesus Christ. And I wish we could just see them through God's eyes. And realize, why is God placing this person in my pathway? Why has he moved this person next door to my, to my house? Why are they now working at the same place I'm working at? What is God doing? And Paul is saying, if we could just realize... God is working in and through us to call people to himself. So what obligation or responsibility has God called you to? I mean, if you just pause today for a few moments and ask yourself, who has God put in my path? Who just out of the blue all at once showed up? Who is it that God has put in my path at church? That maybe I need to put my arm around and encourage. That I may need to just simply sit down and write a, a, a short little card. Can I tell you how precious those cards are y'all sent to us? I mean, I'd go to the mailbox and it, it'd just be full of cards. Cards of, I'm praying for you. Cards are, I hope you get better. Cards are, I hope June can go back to work real soon. No one wrote that. I signed several of your names to the one I wrote, but that's beside the point. God's always trying to work in us and through us and in spite of us sometimes. And so Paul comes to a verse I memorized when I was just a kid, 16 years old preacher where I was at in Ripley, Mississippi had a little preacher training class that I was a part of and he assigned us memory verses and the first memory verse he assigned was Romans 1.16 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And that's, that's where Paul is. I mean, Paul's at that stage of his life where he says, listen, this gospel to me is everything. I remember sitting by a bed of my mentor here about a month and a half ago. He was in hospice care and he was dying. And he looked at me and with difficulty talking, he said, Les, every person I meet, Every person I have a chance to talk to, I tell them about Jesus. He'd gotten to a point in his life where there was nothing else that mattered. And he knew that he was fixing to meet Jesus face to face. And he wanted to meet him saying, Lord, I kept your name on my list to the very end. And that's what Paul did here. Paul said, listen, there's a gospel that God's righteousness is finally revealed in. It's good news. Why? Because it's a righteousness that is by faith. One of the things that Paul's going to get into is that, listen, it's not about how good you are and how good I am. It's not whether we can figure it all out and get everything right, because we can't. And so instead of being based on our good deeds, it's based on our faith in the one who got it right, whose name is Jesus. And so he says, listen, it begins with faith and it ends in faith. And for those of you who may be in, you know, nearing the end of your life, of course, none of us know when God's going to call us home. Please, please, if, as you face those last hours, don't think in yourself, I hope I've done enough good. Because let me just go ahead and tell you, you haven't. And you can't. But he did. And it's my faith in Him that's going to safely carry me over. It is all about faith. And that's what we've got to realize is that we're calling the world to believe in someone who that if the world would turn their mind from all the junk that's out there and simply focus on Jesus, the world would be changed in ways all of us would be amazed at. Because Jesus is the true ruler and the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And so this morning we ask a very simple question. Have you put your faith in Him? Do you trust Him? Do you need to respond to Him? If so, why don't you do it right now as we stand and sing?